Welcome to the Startup Tank Climate Investor Pitch Show, the premier online startup pitch contest where top climate tech and impact founders pitch VCs looking to fund world positive companies. If you're a founder looking for funding or a climate or impact investor interested in joining and investing alongside forward VCs, syndicate, and companies that move the world forward, please visit thestartuptank.com for more details and to apply. But now it's time to enter the tank. And it looks like we are live. Welcome, folks, to the Startup Tank Climate Investor Pitch Show. It's May 1st for anyone tuning in and at a later date. If you're looking to get in front of investors, VCs, angels, LPs, and pitch your company, proceed to pre-series A. This is the place to do it, the Startup Tank and the startuptank.com to apply. All this is brought to you guys by Forward VC and our partner in Climb Climate Accelerator. You can figure out and learn more about that at forward the number four ward.vc we invest in pre-seed and seed companies and then help them grow and scale through our uh our networked growth hacking and criminal cheating so to speak of corporate uh clients networks etc to help the companies decarbonize industry and have a, a bigger impact at scale normally on this session i'm joined by a couple of investor panelists it looks like we have two emergencies from the investor panelists so I'm going to be having a lot more pressure in terms of being a being a shark for the companies pre presenting today. But we've got some pretty incredible companies. I'll hand it over to them in a sec. But how the format of this is, is each company gets five minutes to pitch. Since we only have me as an investor panelist, maybe we give you guys seven minutes, a little bit more leeway to get your message out there, what you're doing, what you're looking for. And then at the end, we'll have our nice gong, a little bit of Q&A. And then at the end of the session, we will uh, we will have a crown of champion. So if you're looking to fundraise and you haven't found your investors yet, or you're trying to find the ideal investors, we've got our climate VC database. You can find that at forward.vc slash VC database. And if you're looking to connect with other players in the space, we've got a climate tech community, our climate techies over at forward.vc slash startup slack. And a WhatsApp group, just forward.vc slash WA group. You can find all the information and more on our website, forward.vc. And now, without further ado, you've heard enough about me, Matt Ward, and Forward VC. Unfortunately, our panelists looks like they had some emergencies. So we're going to uh, we're going to kick things off with uh, the companies presenting today. Uh, how about Hemanth? Do you want to you want to take things away and share a little bit more about Zero Circle and what you guys are doing to try to bring consumers more into the sustainable space? Sure. Um, awesome. Can you guys see my screen yet? Not yet, right? One second. Okay. You guys see my screen? We see your screen and looking good. Awesome, Just awesome. Tell me when you're ready Dang. to roll. Yeah, I'm ready. Take it away. Okay. Thank you, Matt, for this opportunity. Um, yeah, my name is Hemant Seri. Uh, I'm the founder of Zero Circle. Uh, we are a climate fintech startup focusing on green financing. The problem today is that there's a lot of capital that's being created and uh, issued by governments, institutions, etc. Um, and that capital has, uh, uh, you know, a lot of the organizations that are looking to use those capital have a tough time trying to, you know, kind of access it as well as get uh, qualified for that capital. 
Um, and so the challenge is that, you know, while there's enough of, you know, funding being floated around uh, by large organizations and institutions, specifically governments and uh, privates, um, there's not a good way for these organizations to qualify for it. If you look at the landscape today uh, in the uh, green loan space, um, in the large segment, there's you know these things called the green bonds, um, where large institutions like JP Morgan, um, Credit Suisse, Wells Fargo, et cetera, have created these uh, programs to issue you know, $50 million uh, of loans for these uh, green projects. There's similarly, there's a lot of programs at the micro level for microfinancing and um, uh, for you know for kind of these mom and pop shops in various parts of the developing world. But what is missing is this middle tier where you know if you're a hundred you know two fifty million dollar business and you're trying to use kind of transform to a net zero organization, there's not a lot of good ways for you to get access to uh, sustainable financing. So this is where Zero Circle can come in and help. What we've been trying to create is essentially a marketplace to allow and simplify access to green loans for the mid-tier segment. Um, the idea is for you know, allowing organizations to qualify for financing based on certain criteria provided by the financial institutions and align it with their uh, loan requirements and theses that can be basically customized on an institution basis. And then once the loan has been issued, we essentially will work with the organization to monitor ongoing sustainable goals and uh, KPIs as part of uh, the loan covenants and the loan requirements to meet net zero goals. The market for this is pretty huge. Um, every day we hear some government institution issuing um, um, green, green financing, uh, private organizations starting to create green bonds and green capital. Um, and the most recent estimate from McKinsey says that, you know, and there, there needs to be an incremental of about $3.5 trillion in capital that has to be created over the next 30 years to really meet our net zero goals by 2050. But today, there's only 4% of actual funds are in the green, fin in the green finance space. And there's also significant overhead for mid-size organizations to uh, track and monitor this. In addition to that, most of the organizations that uh, you know, essentially uh, um, emit uh, scope three emissions actually sit in the supply chain and they are essentially those small and mid-sized companies that sit, that uh, companies or enterprises work with. The market opportunity is pretty large for this. Um, there's trillions of dollars at the lending market and the sustainable finance market that are being kind of, you know, are projected to grow at 20% uh, CAGR. And what we are expecting is to essentially uh, allow our platform to transform um, about $1 trillion in capital over the next ten, five to 10 years. And this anticipates for us about a $2.7 billion in market opportunity. The way we are doing this is by creating this sustainability network. We are connecting financial organizations, uh, financial institutions, organizations, and their suppliers together. But on top of that, layering third-party data, um, you know, self-assessment and third-party assessments into this ecosystem to automate and simplify this reporting uh, guidelines. So the output of this basically creates, you know, your profile, your factors, and your report, which the institutions can use as part of their assessment decisions, and then organizations can use as part of ongoing tracking and monitoring of their uh, sustainable activities. Today, we have the MVP of the tracking system and the monitoring system live for organizations. And we are in the process of piloting a couple of different um, measuring and reporting uh, approaches for two, uh, for a couple of different pilots. Uh, and in the process, we are actually working, uh, you know, talking to a number of finance institutions to partner with them on the financing side right now. 
The marketplace is still very early and very nascent. Um, as I mentioned earlier, there's a lot of uh, uh, activity happening in the large tiers in the greens bond space. But as companies start to move to the mid-tier and the smaller segments, um, there's definitely a, you know, a couple of companies that are starting to create some of these uh, marketplaces and create these opportunities for uh, standardized frameworks that organizations can use as part of qualification for financing. So where we are looking to kind of work with and you know, look at this market is around basically building a marketplace, but focusing more on the operational activities for these organizations and quantify and qualify them for the financing. Since we started last year, uh, we built uh, uh, this AI-based platform um, to create uh, uh, reporting frameworks to quickly and um, uh, automatically build out a, a sustainable report. Uh, now we are building out the measuring capabilities for the um, uh, carbon emissions and greenhouse gases. We have a couple of uh, LOIs signed um, that we are piloting with them. And we have a number of different data partners that we're working with as part of this overall assessment uh, approach. In addition to that, we have done a number of outreach to uh, organizations to start building up a pipeline as we scale the system and build out the platform to bring a lot of these small and medium organizations into the fold. One minute warning. Um, up um, yeah, our pricing model is fairly straightforward. Um, there's you know about a thousand dollars a year to you know five hundred thousand dollars a year for organizations to be able to uh, track and report and monitor their uh, sustainable activities um, on the platform. And we're targeting the logistics and construction industry specifically at the start of it. And for financial institutions, it's a transaction fee based on the loan uh, and the amount of the loan value issued for the institutions. Uh, we have a strong team that's focused on this. My background is I used to be the uh, head of product at uh, Dun Bradstreet, where I ran the risk and compliance product organization. Uh, we had a number of solutions focused on uh, risk management, supply chains, uh, ESG. And my partner is based out of India. Um, he comes from Zoho. He's uh, He basically ran the partnership strategy and was instrumental in uh, driving Zoho's CRM uh, uh, revenue to about $100 million. Um, that's right now is we're looking to raise a PC round to validate and test and launch the marketplace. Um, and that gives us about two, you know, 12 months of runway uh, with key hires in technology and um, uh, the analysis team and the research team, as well as trying to onboard about 200 organizations over the next 12 months. That's it for myself. Thank you for your time and uh, happy to answer any questions. And thanks for the presentation. It's really interesting. Quick. Just question from the very beginning would be, you're raising 12 months of runway in a terrible economy. Why only 12 months? It seems like a bad idea. Yeah, so we've been going back and forth in terms of the approach of you know whether we want to raise it for 12, you know two years, twelve months. My original ask was actually for for a, a two year period of about two million dollars, but we wanted to test the marketplace because it is tricky to build up this two sided model before we can actually you know raise. Then the idea is that basically two tranches, five hundred k and one point five, five hundred k to test it, verify it, make sure this concept actually works, and then about one point five million dollars to scale into about a hundred thousand organizations. That's the goal. Mm -hmm. And in terms of marketplaces, that would be the second place is the economy is terrible right now and marketplaces models take a long time. Investors want to see revenue traction. They want to see a, a path to profitability, which is a really long and arduous path with marketplaces. Is What are your thoughts on that? 
So the, the interesting piece about what we've been able to do is we actually been able to kind of do these assessments on these companies without actually asking for financing. So we can actually test the assessment model and actually launch these uh, uh, assessment capabilities for the organizations and start to generate some, you know, incremental revenue while we kind of you know, create this two-sided marketplace with the financial institution. We're actually in the process of testing it with um, one of my partners out of Australia, and uh, she's actually opening up this assessment capability to some of the organizations in, you know, in her network and her uh, organization. She's a consulting firm that she works with. Um, and so we can start to generate short-term revenue while we actually prove this marketplace actually works. Because that's like, I agree with you, it's difficult, it's complicated, and it's a two-sided model. But we have a way to at least drive incremental growth while we are, um, uh, while we are you know, pressure testing this concept of the finance marketplace. Understood. And when do you expect to be able to reach scale with the marketplace? And which side will be the kind of early mover versus challenge? Though I see the easier side, actually, the organizations asking for financing, requesting financing. Um, I've had more activity in the last three, four months uh, from the organizations than I've had in the last year since we've kind of transitioned our strategy. Uh, last year, we had a slightly different strategy around how we want to take this to market. Um, but yeah, it's been kind of uh, uh, interesting to see how organizations are actually coming to us for you know, figuring out how to actually measure themselves for financing. The challenging side is really on the banking side to figure out how to standardize this for the uh, mid-tier segment. Um, the, the, the you know, large financing needs already exist and it's a very complicated long run out process. It takes six to nine months to get through, a, you know, kind of these green bond programs. Um, but how do you take that and essentially, you know, translate it for the, for the middle tier? Um, banks have to sign up for that. And obviously there's a risk of greenwashing, there's a risk of monitoring, verification process, all of that needs to be built out and how can we actually scale? So I see that being a probably a bigger challenge in the short term. And it's a challenge that a lot of people are trying to solve. There's a lot of players that are trying to help with originating green loans. Why are you special? Um, so I think what we can do is, you know, my background is in obviously data and technology. So I kind of come with that expertise to kind of bring in data and technology together. So I'm not looking to be uh, a verifier on my own. I'm looking to be basically work with the right partners in the right ecosystem and create that uh, unified view for organizations to scale quickly. So there are third-party verifiers. There's um, We built this uh, um, uh, level-based approach for assessments, right, in terms of you know, if you're uh, you're trying to get a hundred thousand dollar loan, you don't need a complexity of like a you know a, a certification agency or an audit agency like somebody like a Deloitte over to assess that, right? But if you're doing a ten million dollar loan, you need to get that. So we've kind of built out this gradient framework, and I've seen this work in the past uh, from a risk assessment framework with my you know my past life, and we're trying to bring that risk assessment model into the financing framework. What's the biggest pushback you're having then? Um, so right now, I've not actually had any major pushback. I think it's just about getting the organizations, uh, financial institutions specifically, um, getting them, uh, um, you know, kind of comfortable with the model. And so I think the real challenge is going to be for me to test this out, prove it out, and verify that, okay, this can actually work for them, right? Because uh, that, I think, is the challenge. I think they're also skeptical, and, you know, it's really about, um, you know, nobody wants to be the first mover, especially in the banks and especially in this kind of risky environment around, you know, uh, uh, financing today. Um, so trying to find the right partner to work with who can take, you know, kind of jump with us and innovate with us is going to be the, the, the biggest issue right now. Especially with all the smaller financial institutions going under, exactly. those would generally be the earlier. I mean, Silicon Valley Bank or Republic may or may not be 
on the ropes as well. Yeah. Like, like the players that you exactly. would be doing. What, what does that mean for you? How does that change your approach? Um, it doesn't change my approach really. It's just that we have to be careful with our uh, with our bond and with our capital um, and kind of take it slow while we are able to test it. And that's part of the reason why I structure the financing to, you know, kind of have a small round first, just test it out, test the market out, um, get this uh, uh, proof points before we actually, you know, go for a bigger round. Understood. Why are you the person to do this? Why is this your problem? Um, so I guess, you know, I've been in the, uh, data measurement and landing space for a while now. Um, like I said, my past background, I've been in kind of financial services for about, uh, seven, eight years, worked at risk management and, um, uh, Dun & which is a data company for about eight years. Um, and so I get, I understand how companies can use data at scale to be able to drive uh, measurement reporting and verification. And we even built workflow systems uh, for very large corporates and even small and mid-sized companies. So with that background and the fact that my last initiative at um, my previous firm was actually focused on sustainable reporting, sustainability analytics, sustainable data. And so kind of combining uh, data and sustainability together has been kind of some a passion of mine and actually left my company to start this uh, because I think there's a you know, huge open opportunity here to, to tackle this problem and nobody's really tackling it today effectively so it's more it's more mercenary you see an entrepreneurial experiment or experience and or focus and you go for that yeah exactly yeah okay what do you what's the biggest weakness on your team um, so I guess my biggest weakness right now would say is, um, you know, we don't have the right kind of uh, uh, background and talent to hire into the organization, um, specifically with the deep knowledge of the frameworks and standards. So we are kind of learning on the fly um, with the small team we have, um, but then it would be good to actually have somebody who understands the regulatory landscape, the financing landscape, especially around the sustainable dimensions uh, and, you know, kind of uh, jumpstart that. So that's the biggest weakness. I know that's a key hire we want to hire as part of this funding. So that's one of the things I think if we get that right kind of hire, then I think it will accelerate our program much more effectively. Is this a winner-take-all market or is there going to be a lot of players that are moderately successful? Yeah, I think there's going to be a lot of players in this space. Um, I kind of equate this to trade financing. There's a number of organizations doing supply chain financing and trade financing today. Um, there'll be ecosystems um, and there'll be platform providers and financing providers, but I think it's going to be a pretty large market. And there's, you know, effectively uh, 400 million companies today that exist in the in the overall universe. Uh, and over the next 20, 30 years, pretty much everybody has to transform themselves to be a more sustainable organization. It's just going to happen. So I think you're going to have pockets of companies, whether it's regional focused or market definition focused or capability focused, but it's going to be a, a larger ecosystem than just winner takes all. Understood, understood. Well, thanks for thanks for sharing him on. It's, uh, it's very interesting what you guys are doing. And it is one of the more credible plays in the space, even though there are a lot of players that are trying to get in. It's a, it's a massive market. Yeah. Awesome. Thank you so much, Matt, for having me here. Yeah, likewise. Thanks so much for coming on. And let's go. We were in money. Let's go the exact opposite direction. James, you want to tell us more about saving e-bikes from being stolen? Sure. Yeah, totally different. Totally different type of business. Uh, cheers for hosting this, Matt. I'll just get my pitch here. 
Yeah, absolutely. Let me know and I'll start your seven minute clock. You got some extra time because <laughs> something happened with our, our panelists. So yep. you get yours yeah. truly and then all the all the folks tuning in. Cheers, and man. if you're tuning in, folks, be sure to subscribe either on YouTube or you can find us on uh, the Startup Tank pretty much anywhere, podcasting platform, Substack, et cetera. We'll love to see you there. Check the show notes and we'll uh, we'll kick things off or give it away now to, to James. You want to share more about Backpedal? Cheers, Matt. Uh, yeah, I'm James, one of the co-founders of Backpedal. And what we're building is a platform of services for e-bike owners. And we're starting with a technology-driven solution to e-bike theft, um, which basically does prevention, recovery, and insurance. Now, since applying for Pitch Tank, we've actually ended up having an oversubscription on a 250k angel round so we should be closing that in the next in the next few weeks but it, I'm always looking for future partners for our business like I can see us having a really good uh six nine months growth and I think I, we might be back out in the market again in the future so yeah if people do want to have a chat and they think it's a fit yeah just make sure to get in touch so I've got about 30 years uh, on e-bikes and bikes. Like my first jobs growing up were always in bike shops. I've worked as a mobile bike mechanic for part-time gigs. Um, and I've had bikes in the, in using e-bikes. I've had jobs using e-bikes as well. So this is an area that I really know and love. But my professional career actually started with investment banking. Uh, I was doing private equity buyouts uh, and acquisitions. Uh, I left that at 23, though, to start my first uh, business, and that was a platform marketplace business in funerals and death tech. That ended up getting taken over by a FTSE 250 PLC in the end. Um, so I've ne so this is, and then I left that and then started working on working on backpedal over the pandemic. Two co-founders, Richard and Matt, who I've both known for a long time. Uh, Richard heads up everything to do with partnerships and sales, and Matt is our like lead engineer CTO. So our vision is basically that there's going to be this massive business created in e-bike services. And we take a lot of inspiration from this by looking at what happened in the car market. So when cars were introduced, uh, there was this springing up of related service companies. So take the AA, for example, been going for over a hundred years now, recently valued at $4 billion. They provide through their like club membership, kind of overarching service platform, a whole host of different services to customers. We think the same thing is gonna happen in the e-bike world. And that's what we've come to build. But. I also know from a prior business that trying to build a platform and marketplace business is, is incredibly tough and having the right foundation is absolutely essential. Uh, I'll go into the reasons why we've started with theft recovery on the next slide, but like all good stories, there's an element of luck here as well. So during the pandemic, my girlfriend's bike got stolen. She's a teacher. She used that bike to get to work every single day. And that theft was a massive, <laughs> it was a massive impact for us. So she then had to either get the train every day, take longer to get to work, spend about an extra 20 pounds every day, or she had to beg, borrow and steal lifts off people. And it just blew my mind that theft hadn't been solved yet as, as, as an issue. And given the acceleration and demand of things like e-bikes, it's, it's incredibly important to solve this. And that's because, well, 
250,000 bikes get stolen every year in the UK alone. So it's, it's a big issue from that basis. But now these e-bikes are be, being used for functional jobs. People need them available. They're taking kids to school. They're commuting. Businesses are using them for deliveries. Like theft really throws a spanner into the works for these companies. And alongside that, the asset value. These e-bikes are now routinely 3,000, 4,000, 5,000, 6,000 pounds. That is a serious economic impact to that person when that bike gets stolen. So looking at theft, we, we chose it because it, it, it is this fantastic foundation for the long term. And I kind of think about it on three levels. I think about it on a problem level, think about it on a business model level, and I think about it on a growth level. And on the problem level, like it, it kind of almost doesn't really need explaining to people. Like everyone gets that theft is this massive issue with massive impact. But it was when I started thinking about the business model that I got really excited. Um, essentially, we're a subscription model, so people pay us uh, eight ninety nine per month, and these are long term subscribers. We get barely any churn, and this is because people know when they sign up that they're hoping not to have to use us. So literally the agreement with our, with customers is they're going to give us money. And if something happens, we'll help them out. But for 99% of customers that doesn't happen. So from a startup perspective, you're literally sitting there collecting money off a base of customers every month. And then what really sealed it for me was thinking about the growth growth loop. And this comes back to, again, the problem, everyone gets that theft is a problem, but nobody thinks it can be solved. So what we've started to do and what we plan to do is basically use um, recovery content, social media recovery content to drive users. And that's because the more customers that we get, we're going to have more thefts. The more thefts that we have, the more content we can produce proving that we can solve. Oh, that's dirty. (laughs) And the the more content that we can produce, the more people that we can persuade to trust us and come on board and bring more users. And the whole point of this is to then build this strong foundation that we can then cross sell the further services to and build out that platform. And the reason why we're really excited and think that this is such a great fit at the moment is, is this e-bike market is exploding. So I've always been a bike user and I think maybe we will do bikes eventually, but really for now, us, the focus is this e-bike market. Customers like Ilan there. Ilan's one of our customers. One minute warning. Ilan's one of our customers. she takes her she takes her kids to school on her e-bike. She goes to her allotment to do her to do her gardening there. It's customers like Hilan who are like really driving this growth. Putting some numbers on it, 30 million e-bikes in Europe right now. Uh, to put that in context, there's 150 million cars. So this is catching up quick. The market has been growing super, super fast. And given the long-term macro tailwinds, we think it's going to continue. You've got obviously economic through cost of living, you've got environmental through climate change, and obviously people are trying to live healthier and healthier lives. Getting out of cars and onto e-bikes is is kind of a no-brainer for a lot of our a lot of our issues. Yeah, cheers. Thanks. Uh, happy to dig into any of it in any more detail. Let's dig into it. A are you are you AA for for bikes or triple A? AA is Alcoholics Anonymous, right? Uh, so this is this is the Americanisms and, and Britishisms. The AA is the UK Automobile Association. Uh, yeah, you might America, need to go with tri- American, you might need to go with AAA yeah, there. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> very interesting. Very interesting. So your basically goal is to become the insurance company for e-bikes. So that that's the near term goal, and we've mm-hmm. actually just closed um, an insurance partnership deal. So at the moment, the, the customers who've been signing up have all been 
really early adopters who are willing to double pay. So they pay for recovery through us and they typically hold a separate insurance policy. Now that did, doesn't really make sense for most people because people don't want to do that double paying. But we've actually just closed off um, an insurance partnership that we should be launching at the end of this month. So pretty soon we'll be offering to customers basically one combined product whereby you pay us. If your bike gets stolen, we'll go out to get it back. If we can't get it back, we'll give you a payout. So it's almost like a kind of insurance plus deal for the customer. But that is actually just that's just the start. I think once we've once we've nailed that insurance product, the idea is then to start to build out those additional services. So whether it's like tangential fintech things like finance for e-bikes, claims management on the legal side, there's like a whole host of services that we want to then start adding in. But yeah, insurance is the first bit. I mean, why don't insurance companies just do this? It's a good it's a good question. Um, a lot of them really aren't set up for it. So if you're an insurance company, you're not really set up to go out and get e-bikes back. And it's, it's, it's not something that a lot of them have got the operational setup to be able to do. Uh, it, it's, not a, it's not a particularly easy or quick task. So to compound this, most e-bikes at the moment don't come with GPS trackers. So, the insurance, so we're kind of solving two problems at the moment. We're solving getting trackers onto bikes, and we're also then solving getting those back through recovery. Those aren't things that we've seen another insurance provider be able to do yet. However, we have had inbounds from multiple insurance companies who want us to go and recover their bikes. Like they literally just want to pay us money. Pay us yeah, like that might be an easier quid. that might be an easier service, or just to white label what you guys are doing. It, I think, do you know what we've we've explored it, and we've got a couple of insurers who have talked about it, but they've not quite pulled the trigger yet, and. It could be a good near-term revenue generator, but for me, if we can if we can nail the subscription model and just start to get subscription customers coming through, that's the uh, that that's 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 where like the sustainability is in this business. It's that reliable monthly income from the subscriptions. Well, you would have the reliable monthly income if you had the insurance companies as your clients. You would just have a lot more clients and a lot smaller percentage of the the pie, yeah. but a much bigger pie. Yeah, yeah. just food for uh, thought. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah. So because because insurance companies can do this and there are lots of different trackers, anybody can kind of do this. So what's the what's the defensibility? What's to prevent other people in different cities or countries yeah. from doing exactly the same? Yeah, no, it's it's a, it's a really good question. And there's there's three ways that we think about this. The first is in the actual recovery operations. So we we basically use a, a network of retired police officers, ex-military guys, military uh, ex-military guys, like other security professionals. Now, it's not particularly easy to figure out how to find and recruit these people. Um, and what we've basically seen is that these guys also don't really need to work multiple things. Like the, the retired, it's people like my dad, like retired police officer, 30 years police. Like he, he just wants some occasional fun, well-paying work to do. And because we can pay people well, they want to come out and do the work. Now, that doesn't mean they won't necessarily join another platform, but it's not like they are relying on us for, or they, or they really need a lot of income. So I think once we've got these guys, if we're remunerating them well, and if, if we're managing them well, and they're enjoying working with us, I don't think there's a massive incentive for those guys to like work across like four or five different competing platforms. Now, the second one is police relationships, and the police are massively overstretched. Uh, 
but they do need to solve bike crime. They get they get absolutely slated for it, both by the press, both by local communities, because they're not very good at solving bike crime. But because they're overstretched, the police also don't want to manage multiple relationships. Once we're in that position where we know who to speak to at, at, within the police in each in each area, that is defensibility by by my method. Longer term, there's a data play here as well. Now this this is 100% longer term, but say if we get into a position where we've got the UK nailed down, we're starting to do various cities in Europe, we will be building up a massive data set of like how bike theft happens. Now, of course, someone else can come in and start to offer the product, but if we're, if we're doing it better and cheaper than them, it makes it quite hard for that person. What about the vigilante effect? So Batman gets on your platform yeah. and beats the crap out of someone. How do, how do you deal with that? Because I imagine when someone steals a bike and you go back to steal the bike back, it doesn't necessarily always go so well. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a really good question. And it's something that is obviously a risk for this business. Now, we kind of do this in a couple of ways. And one is in the people that we use. So it is people who know how they should behave and these people hold their own insurance so say if you're like a retired police officer and you go out and do um kind of like divorce proceeding work or you're delivering like jury summons to people like th these people know what they should be doing so one is you hire the right people who aren't going to go out and do that vigilante stuff but then the second part is we are, are you hiring them or contractors quick so quick it's, it's on it's on demand it's on demand contracting it's on demand contracting at the moment i think longer term we will end up having a core team for ourselves, but for for now, it's on-demand contracting with these guys. The second part is actually how we utilize the police. So we're already starting to build up kind of expertise in what jobs we do and what jobs we get the police to do. So say, for example, like we don't go into people's houses and we don't go and like confront people when it's like a risky situation and it looks like there's the potential for um for, 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 for an incident and what so what we actually end up doing is our guys go on the ground and they'll be like the eyes and ears on the ground and then we feed all of that information through to the police and get the police to respond now we've actually managed to get the police to respond five times out of the six that we've needed them so it won't be a hundred percent but then again we actually don't need to get back every bike that's where the insurance comes in so if there's situations where it's too risky to recover or it's not safe to recover We've still got the fallback insurance. Can you make any? Can you make any money for just potential like citizens arrest or kind of getting the actual criminals? So, 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 so this this happens already. Actually, there's like, and this gave us a lot of inspiration at the start. There's Facebook groups out there. Uh, one of them in Cambridge, in particular, uh, that we've done some work with. They've got twelve thousand members. It's called Stolen Bikes in Cambridge, and they actually. They're just members of the public and they routinely get stolen bikes back by seeing when they come up on eBay and Gumtree and going round to thieves' houses that they know operate in the area. So there is this, I think there is the potential for some community-based stuff longer term, but realistically, we're not at a size where we can manage manage that risk. So for us, it's stick with the... No, police I don't officers. even mean that. I mean, you're getting the police officers, you're figuring out who's stealing the bikes, and then you're going to the cops and saying, this guy stole the bikes, can I get a $150 tip off for... Oh, well, there's a very different culture in the US, because I know in the US, you can get like paid for tip offs and paid for like reporting things in the UK. If that happens in the UK, I'll be absolutely amazed. But I, I'll, I'll suggest it to a few police officers and see what they say. <laughs> so you mentioned UK, what's the expansion plans? 
Yeah, well, we've already got customers in Amsterdam. So um, one of our business clients, they when they launched in the UK, they also wanted us to protect their bikes in Amsterdam. So we've kind of got coverage across the UK and then Amsterdam as well. And to set that up, we just looked for local people who match the same profile of what we need in the UK. So initially, we want to close out the UK, and then we're going to roll out through uh, Europe. Now, we have had conversations with um, a big guy in the US who runs like one of the big YouTube channels, and he's got a bit big e-bike store in New York. He would like to set up something similar in America. So really for expansion plans, it, it could be a toss-up between Western Europe and America as the next market. We'd, we'd have to just put more work into it, assess which one's the right option. I mean, an obvious acquirer is Ring and Amazon. Mm. Yeah, or an insurance company is a or an insurance company. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. What about? I I assume you don't share any data with insurance companies. For instance, people biking too quickly or maybe swerving left and right. And that's a good. That's a good question. Um, no, we don't at the moment. And to be honest. The tr because of how the GPS trackers work, there's actually usually only a limited amount you can do on that front because the trackers aren't sending like a, a signal every second. Because if they did that, they'd be losing, they'd be using quite a lot of power. So usually, how the trackers are set up is to set maybe to send a signal maybe like every thirty seconds, every minute. So you might get a bit of that data that you're looking for, but the the actual hardware isn't quite there yet for companies to be able to do that analysis. But I was thinking more what you would do with that data because. If you know where I'm biking on my bike, I'm not so yeah. so keen on you sharing where I'm biking on my bike. Uh, not quite sure I under, understand, but just as an extra little snippet, we've actually started building AI and machine learning models to actually predict when a bike is at risk. Uh, and we've started testing this with a couple of customers. So basically what we do is we, we kind of put all of the data into a black box and it will say, right, your bike is usually in these sort of areas and being used in this sort of way. As soon as we then get like a red flag that like indicates the bike is being used in a different way or has gone somewhere new, we ping it through to that customer on WhatsApp. So the customer just gets a WhatsApp being like, are you, is your bike safe? If it, if it is fantastic, they can just click yes, comes back through to us. If it's no, obviously then we can respond even more quickly than that customer might have even known that the bike's been stolen. So there are really interesting data, data plays for this. It's, just at the first point, we're just acquiring customers now. That's the main thing. What's the biggest challenge? Biggest challenge is getting trackers onto bikes effectively. So, or efficiently. We're not a hardware company. We don't make GPS trackers. Basically, as long as a GPS tracker performs to certain standards, we can use any third-party GPS tracker. And at the moment, the e-bike market doesn't, most e-bikes don't come fitted with trackers so we've either got to get bikes on trackers through partners like retailers uh, which is doable it's feasible i've done it before at my old business but um it's still fairly inefficient sales route on that front to like partner with retailers so that they can then sell the trackers so that we can have our service what's really exciting though is more and more oems more and more of these bike manufacturers are starting to build in trackers at the factory level so we've got our first relationship coming this summer where a new bike brand, they're launching their e-bike and they're going to pre-fit a GPS tracker and they're going to like combine our service for the customer at checkout. So it starts to become easier and easier and easier for us to just acquire customers. Whereas at the moment, getting trackers on the bikes is relatively inefficient because you've kind of got a bit of a convoluted sales channel.
What about scooters and scooter uh, and uh, scooter brands? Because yeah. they they have big fleets and big fleets equal yeah. big money, and I'm sure yeah. those are getting stolen. So two 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 slightly different questions. Two I'll make two points. One scooters uh, e scooters as a whole, yeah, totally makes sense as well. It is a slightly different customer profile because usually with a scooter you can take it with you, so kind of the theft risk is innately a bit lowered. But we do have inbound questions from people about protecting scooters. Then on the shared fleets, so shared e scooters and shared e bikes. Totally, we we are definitely a solution for those guys, but I think we're a solution for those guys when we're at a scale and operational efficiency that I can go to the CEO and CFO and say, how much are you guys spending on theft at the moment? Because these guys will already have teams and the CFO will have a line in his budget to say either like replacement scooter cost from theft or how many guys do we have, are we paying to go out and recover these and for themselves? So I think when we'll be able to bring those guys on is when we've got an established network and I can go to the CFO and say, how much are you spending on this? We can, we can cut that in half. That's when they become customers. If you fail, why will it be? You've asked me this before and I didn't have a good answer. Um, Better have a good one now. I think it might be just lack of growth in the e-bike market. So say if say if the e-bike market doesn't take off as we think it's going to, say if it say if it stays as a as a relatively niche transport mode. So say if only two two percent of customers, two percent of people use e-bikes, or five percent of people use e-bikes. Maybe maybe that just means that we don't have enough scale density of recovery operations to make it work. Uh, obviously, I'm I'm super bullish on the e-bike market. I think this could become something that 10, 15, 20, 25% of people use routinely. But I I would go I would go lack of growth growth in e-bikes as potentially being the biggest failure point. And what's the biggest weakness on your team? Uh, we actually we probably need um, someone with police or police style or recovery operation style um, experience it's it's not something that we've ever done with none of us are, are policemen my parents were policemen so i know the world but it's not like i've ever worked in the police uh, so i think that is that is probably currently the biggest weakness however what protects us a little bit there is the fact that really in these early stages the majority of the work is on selling and acquiring customers it, innately in the model you actually don't have to do very many recoveries because not, not all your customers' bikes get stolen. It's like a, a percentage of your bikes of your customers' bikes get stolen. So, what we're planning to do at this stage is actually try and find someone to do some advisory work. So, try and find like a senior police officer who can advise us separately without being a full time team member. At this, at this point, I don't think we've got the budget to have someone be a full time recovery operations senior person at this stage. Understood. Understood. Well, thanks for sharing. It's it's very interesting. I don't have an e bike, but. I can totally imagine, especially mm. living in Europe, how quickly these things get moved around. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, cheers, Matt. Thank you. Yeah, cheers cheers as well. And now is our quick first time out, folks. If this is your first time, this is the Startup Tank Climate Investor Pitch Show. Normally, we're joined by two to three fellow panelists, climate VCs at other top funds. They must have had emergencies, so they're not here. Apologies, but we have quite a few folks uh, tuning in from around the world. If you want to pitch on an upcoming session, if you're a pre-seed to pre-series A climate company looking for funding, growth, scaling, the startuptank.com, 
And if you want to learn more about our partner in Climb Accelerator, you can find out more details at forward.vc. We invest in companies that move the world forward and then cheat through our network and connections to help them land two to five plus major customers, clients, pilots, and serious traction. For more details, forward.vc, where you can also find our Climb at VC database, 900 plus top funds, incubators, accelerators, and CVCs focus on climate and clean tech and our climate investor and climate founder communities. You can sign up on the site forward.vc. And now let's uh, let's move things over to move it together in case you're uh, looking for furniture or need to move. I personally, uh, I personally prefer not needing a bunch of new furniture every time because it's furniture. It kind of lasts and it's kind of high carbon. So Antonia, um, do you guys want to take things away? Yes, of yes. course. That was a good one. We should remember. <laughs> occasionally, occasionally, there's a good one that comes. Out. You guys got you got seven minutes. Tell me when you. So uh, take it away. One, um, thank you for having us today. And um, we would like to introduce Move It Together, the first accessible secondhand furniture marketplace. Does it? Yeah. yeah. No. no. <laughs> Perfect. So um, let's talk about the problem. Our story began in a similar way, both as students without cars, we had little opportunity to make our living space more sustainable. And even today, there's no current solution. So we asked people in our market research on um, their thoughts on buying and selling secondhand furniture and why they don't use current solutions. And most of them answered that the process is too complicated due to communication, transportation, and also security concerns. And in the end, they decide not to buy secondhand furniture. And the lack of accessibility and also um, the problem of the frustration uh, leads us to the main problem that is that 90% of furniture waste is incinerated or landfilled. And to address this issue, we are launching an accessible online platform for consumers and businesses to resell furniture and buy secondhand furniture. And people wish for better filter options, transaction security, community features, and transportation opportunities. And we are designing Move It Together to be easy to use and user-friendly so that we can attract more buyers and sellers. And in the end, we are hoping to reduce the furniture waste in landfills up to 30%. So our value proposition, uh, we divided into two parts, C2C and B2B. Um, on one hand, we already launched our first MVP. We are offering the matchmaking between buyers and sellers. And um, for the B2B side, um, we have clients such as carpenters, upcyclers, declutterers, and offices. And we are also um, solving the chicken and egg problems through higher supply. Um, let's take a look at our market. As you can see, our market size is a massive. The European furniture market is 96 billion euros. And even if we take a closer look to our first target market, which is a secondhand furniture market in Germany, we can see a high potential for Move It Together. Um, our competition is out there and they are all focusing on one specific part of the user journey, but we as Move It Together, we want to have the whole um, user experience and user journey. So our USPs are on one hand, the transportation, the uh, secure transactions, and also the user-friendly platform. 
Okay, and now you're probably asking yourself why now is the perfect time for a secondhand marketplace for furniture. Um, we can actually see a super high potential um, by the secondhand boom right now, um, which is also mainly um, due to the younger generations. And in fact, we can see the secondhand market growing um, by 127% by 2026, which is massive. Um, and we can also see in other uh, geographic regions, as well as other industries, uh, multiple players uh, jumping on this trend and very successfully jumping on this trend. Um, so how do we actually want to enter the market? Uh, we first set up our social media pages and this was highly successful for us and we were able to scale up the number of followers super fast um, and also attract a lot of customers through this. Um, as a next step, we are planning to uh, roll out our larger marketing campaign um, while having a large focus on online marketing, but also some offline marketing strategies such as hosting local events where we will invite um, experts as Merle mentioned um, on our platform uh, to educate potential users about how to upcycle, recycle, and also resell furniture. Um, and last but not least, uh, next to all of that, we are developing and launching our mobile application, including various features, um, also some AI um, visualization tools um, to just create an even better uh, user experience in the end. And let's talk financials. How are we planning on making money? Um, we will basically have four different revenue streams. Uh, the first two being transaction-based, where we will take a 5% fee of the buying price uh, from the buyers and a 7% fee from the sellers. And we expect the average shopping cart to be around 250 euros, um, which we are still currently validating with our MVP. Uh, we're also taking a 30% fee of each transportation fee. And here we expect the average transportation um, fee within cities to be around 80 euros. And last but not least, we have our B2B revenue streams um, where we will work with a commission-based model and we expect the average commission per deal to be around 170 euros. Um, with all of that in mind, uh, we project the number of transactions for 2024 to be around 40,000 on our platform. So now we want to proudly present to you what we've reached so far. Since launching our MVP mid-February, um, we managed to attract over 200 uh, C2C customers um, in major cities in Germany and also our first ones in, over in the Netherlands uh, right now. Um, we also managed to gain over 400 euros in revenue and onboarded our uh, first five local businesses. Um, and we also managed to land our four major B2B deals uh, with some co-working spaces, offices, but also one TV set now, which just shows the super high potential out there. And what lies ahead for Move It Together? Um, last quarter, we were able to get into the um, Circular Together incubator focused on the circular economy of Impact Hub Berlin. Uh, we also started offering our full service. Um, this quarter is all about scaling our customer base. Uh, and then next quarter, we're hoping to have our first hirings and from there then roll out our marketing campaign as well as um, launch our first version of our mobile application. Um, and then by quarter two of 2024, we're hoping to reach 15,000 transactions on our platform. Okay, who's behind Move It Together? Uh, my co-founder Merle is the creative part of our team. Uh, she studied business communication and uh, has ever since worked in well-known startups on their marketing and branding strategies. I myself uh, did my master's in entrepreneurship in the Netherlands and my expertise lies in the fields of operations and product um, and more specifically sustainable processes. And our team is complemented by two amazing advisors uh, with a very impressive track record. And this is our ask. Um, we're looking for an investment of 300,000 euros uh, to scale our operations even further.
Awesome. Thanks for, thanks for presenting guys or girls, I think, yes, I should say it's, um, (laughs) it's, uh, it's incredibly interesting what you're doing, but at the same time, I definitely have some questions and some worries. And the first is you're planning to get to 40,000 transactions next year. How do you plan to do that? That's a lot of transactions, Mm -hmm. especially for think high value furniture, I assume. Yeah, for sure. Um, I mean, we can already see that the market is out there. I mean, uh, actually, currently, we have to kind of stop going out there and uh, talking to people because we get so many customers on a daily basis that that it's almost too much for us to handle at that point. Um, I mean, since launching our MVP, uh, we see that the market is super large out there, ranging from individual consumers to businesses and also local businesses. Um, and this is something that we've reached organically and we can see that when putting some money in online marketing campaigns, we can reach a way broader audience even. So, um, this is something that is definitely feasible for us with how it's growing so far. And also, um, for the transaction is obviously also in mind that, um, people buy and sell multiple items through us, um, because we can also already see that, uh, for example, people who are moving to a different flat and they want to get rid of all of their furniture, then it's sometimes the case that one person sells like five to 10 items through us, um, within a week, for example. So can you walk me through the process? You mentioned transportation fees. How exactly does it look like I need to sell? a bed, a couch or something, or I need to buy? What does the process look like? Mm -hmm. Um, So right now we are offering the matchmaking service. So that's kind of our MVP. So people can fill in a form on our website, um, either to buy or to sell something. Um, And then once that is done, we contact them um, and we actually help them to take the pictures of the item when you're selling it, Uh, when you're buying it, then obviously that's not a need. Um, But then after that, we are looking for the perfect buyer um, or the perfect item uh, if you're looking for something. And then we contact you again, we send you different options options. Um, so let's take the buyer side first. Um, so if you're buying something, we send you different options um, and then you can decide what you want. And then uh, we offer the transportation. So obviously there is a self-pickup option if you have a car, if you want to pick it up. But we can see that a lot of people, especially within cities, actually do not have the means to pick up furniture easily. Um, a lot of them don't even have a driver's driver's license or even a car. Um, so we actually then uh, offer to drive that item to you. And how we do that is we actually talk to way different partners and um, different companies who offer within city transportations, also some local businesses. Um, but we figured out that this is oftentimes super expensive for the consumer itself. Um, and then it's like, I don't know, you pay 80 euros for a used couch and then you pay 200 euros for the transportation, even though it's right next door. Um, So how we're solving that is that we're currently working with car sharing companies. And um, the plan is to have working students um, driving the trucks and then um, transporting the items. And we're also planning to work with kind of a booking system here, because the good thing about furniture is that a lot of people do not need it this afternoon. It's okay if they have it like next Wednesday. Um, So we can really work with a booking system and smart route planning on that. So there's a lot of companies that wanted to make delivery companies for food, for furniture, for just about everything. And they went and raised a ton of money and realized that it was a race to the bottom. It's incredibly challenging and logistically complex. Why Mm -hmm. not just use somebody? Um, 
it's not like it's not something that we do not consider right now i mean it's still we we have some partners that we are talking to um still and also when it comes to different cities we're right now trying to test out various different things um so this is something that's still on the table definitely um however right now for the end consumer um we figured out that the best way to do it is really working with car sharing companies and um, hiring people because most items um like a truck fits a lot of different items and we can really save costs here and also save um, CO2 emissions through really um, making the route smarter and um, loading the trucks smarter. So that's our goal here. But I mean, this is still something that we're definitely open to talk to different partners as well. Okay. What do you foresee being the, the most often purchased or that kind of, what's your 80-20 on actual products? Mm-hmm. Um, so I mean furniture items themselves, right? Furniture items themselves. Yeah. Um, we were actually quite surprised about this because we were assuming that most items would be like um, solid items, like a table or, or chairs or something. Um, but we can see that actually the items that are um, sold and also bought um, the most are couches. Um, so I think couches are like right now the best seller for us. And then um, I think the rest is mainly uh, probably right now tables, chairs, and like, um, yeah, things that are in daily use, I would say. So I just got a a furniture pullout couch. Mm-hmm. I found it on Facebook Marketplace, and it, sir, it was a lot of hassle, mm-hmm. but it cost me one franc. Mm-hmm. So how do you deal with the fact that a lot of this stuff is things that people just want to get rid of and get it the heck out of their house? Yeah. What's the, how do you handle the pricing? How do you suggest that if you want to make a marketplace work? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it's it's good that you're asking that because we can see this as a huge issue. That was also something that came up in like the very beginning of our customer discovery. Um, we can see that not only with furniture, but I think in every secondhand space right now that people are really driving down the prices because they want to get rid of us as fast as they can. Um, so sometimes, I don't know, you can get a designer couch on Facebook Marketplace for free, basically. Um, but this is something where we really, as a platform, also want to offer the seller the opportunity to get rid of it tomorrow. But still get a price for it and um, I think this is something that we're solving through different things for example right now people are a lot of the times unsure what price to take so we also put in into our MVP that we can help them set the price Um, so that's something that we're offering and also something that we are trying to improve um, especially once we have a more like technical solution out there we're trying to um, really use smart scans to scan like what is the price that they can take because obviously it also needs to be realistic because we can also see the other side um, where people charge way too much for a secondhand item and they have unrealistic expectations. So really working with this pricing suggestion um, is how we want to solve that. But the the pricing suggestion only works if the consumers are willing to pay it. And if the consumers can get something for basically free or they could come to your platform. Yeah. Um, I mean, for that, we have our features that kind of make it way easier for them to buy through us. Um, and of course, there will always be the case that if your neighbor like gives you your couch for uh, the couch for free or gives it to you on Facebook Marketplace, um, that's something that we cannot avoid and that we do not want to avoid. But um, we can already see that, especially for these larger items, people are actually willing to pay. However, the trend is or was going more towards that, you know, secondhand items are 
bit dirty, maybe not the same quality or something. So this was really something that's in the mind of a lot of people. And we are trying to, um, through offering like higher quality images, offering higher quality descriptions, materials and everything on there. Um, and also working with experts on that, um, like our upcyclers, uh, we are really trying to make it more attractive overall. Like, because we think that this is a huge issue in the world right now that um, people are very hesitant still to engage in secondhand trading. So we really want to solve that through making our platform um, yeah, very user-friendly and attractive. Yeah, there's the trust factor. And then there's also you show up and then the couch is already gone or the person doesn't show. Yeah, so there, sure. there are certainly things that you can do that. You're doing B2B and C2C. Yeah. Why? Talk about Talk about the challenges of building each of those and why you decided to do both. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, so actually it was a coincidence, to be honest. Um, so we started with C2C, then we had our first customers, um, we started gaining more customers, and we had a customer who bought a couch through us and wanted to have it transported. So we transported it to him. It was in the very beginning in, in February, I think. And uh, it was actually an office space. And then uh, we were quite surprised. And he was like, my office is looking for more furniture. Can I buy that through you? And um, we said, yes, of course. And that was the point where we really like dug deeper into that. And we were like, okay, that makes total sense. Of course, offices and businesses need furniture as well. They don't have the resources, time, and it's very costly to buy new furniture all the time. Um, and to put people on looking like on Facebook marketplace or something that's impossible for businesses. So um, we saw the potential there and we reached out to different um, yeah, businesses, uh, mainly startups right now here in Berlin, because we know that they have to move a lot and they have to buy new furniture and they want to furnish their spaces more sustainably. But as I said, they don't have the resources um, for that. So uh, we see that there's a lot of interest there. And we also managed to, to land our first deals here um, with co-working spaces as well as offices. Um, and yeah, this is something that we are definitely planning on also focusing on in the future. Um, we're also currently working with a team of interior designers on one of the co-working spaces, um, which is a great partnership as well, because we can really offer the full package here and the company doesn't have to worry about anything. Um, and then on the other hand, we also have our local businesses uh, where we work with upcyclers and um, declutterers and uh, yeah, carpenters and all these people working on furniture because we can really see them being the solution to our chicken and egg problem and really offering the supply and helping people to engage in this whole circle. Um, for example, right now we have a buyer, um, a B2B buyer who's, who's buying something through us and um, we have an upcycler actually upcycling like very old, very damaged furniture for them. And it looks super cool and it's in the office now. So we can really create this, this circular economy effect here through um, creating those synergies between the different parties. I feel like you have two different segments though. So one is the home and one is the business or the office. Mm -hmm. And are you worried at all about separating your focuses? Because if an office needs table or chairs or a home needs a couch or a kitchen table, two different buyers, two different sellers, same marketplace challenging is this the marketplace for office furniture or is this the marketplace to make my home more comfy without spending a bunch um yeah so we are separating those two so we will have two different like basically services um i mean we are trying to create the linkages so we can also see that a lot of offices need like 
one couch right now you know it's not always like okay we need i don't know 40 desks every single week um but that they're looking for one item so there's obviously also the chance to connect them to individuals but in general we are trying to separate those two um so we are already doing that right now um for our b2b customers we are offering a different um approach than our c2c customers and not like directly connecting those two parties together how do you grow and scale mm -hmm. Um, I mean, as of right now, as I said, we see a lot of customers coming in organically, which is amazing. Um, but we also want to test out some um, online marketing campaigns now because we see this as a very important channel for us. Um, I mean, we can already tell from like social media and all the smaller marketing things we're doing right now um, that the topics of interior DIY and just sustainable living are a super hot topic right now. Um, and yeah, we through doing that, um, we can already see a lot of people coming in um, through our Instagram channel, our Facebook groups and everything. We also created a Facebook group, um, which is also scalable to different cities, of course. Um, but yeah, we want to um, actually go more into the online marketing and really, um, yeah, putting campaigns out there and um, yeah, getting the people on our platform instead of things they're using right now. Um, also engaging people who are mainly not trading secondhand uh, furniture right now. Um, and yeah, I think then it won't be a problem for us to scale our customer base, to be honest, with how it's looking like right now. If they want to pay for it, that's... Uh, Tarab just joined. I'll I'll add him in as well. He's with he's with Close Loop Partners. He had a he had a little bit of a a delay in joining. But Tarab, do you want to give a quick overview of yourself, Close Loop, what you guys focus on, and then maybe uh, a couple of questions for Antonia? It's, it looks like you uh you know what's happening now. Uh, hi team, how y'all doing? Uh, first of all, nice to meet everyone. Uh, uh, actually, uh, Matt, I. Uh, I think uh, if it's okay, I would love to stay off a of video. I'm uh, not. I'm under the weather today, uh, and wanted to take some time to come spend, uh, uh, you know, kind of come spend time with y'all. Um, really nice to meet you, team, uh, uh, Antonia and team. Um, so just for reference, I I left Kozu Partners towards the end of last year, but that's a, an investment firm based in New York, focused on investing in the circular economy. And uh, came across a business similar to yours. So I'll just kind of add some commentary from what we saw in that in that case. Mm -hmm. um, I think what we saw just uh, first of all, take everything I say with a grain of salt. I do not know your business at that level at all. I just I'm providing one anecdote from something I've seen. Uh, but I think some of the questions that came up in that in that case were uh, in C to C. I think the challenge is uh, first of all competition, like Facebook Marketplace and Craigslist and those kinds of uh, 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 networks that are already out there, and competing against them. I think uh, we saw the companies that were trying to the company, at least I was trying to do that, uh, had some challenges around uh, around fending off that competition and the marketing spend required to fend off that competition. Uh, so that's just something I wanted to bring up on the C to C side. Um, the other challenge that uh, it, throughout the circular economy space, especially with C2C, uh, uh, is uh, logistics costs, the cost of transportation, uh, especially when you're talking about heavy uh, objects like, um, you know, couches and stuff like that. It, it, it gets uh, it gets costly. And so to try to be able to uh, um, mitigate those costs and control those costs uh, tends to be a little bit of a challenge. And so in that case, at least we saw more potential and I think we saw that company gear gearing their business more towards B2B. Uh, 
And what did seem uh, interesting about that was I think they were providing not just the uh, the furniture and the items, but also uh, I would say they were a little bit of a, a design firm as well. So they were essentially helping design the workspaces or provide an all-in solution on how to design a sustainable workspace. And that was the model that seemed to have gotten the most traction for them is providing this kind of holistic service uh, beyond just uh, being able to kind of provide uh, provide the uh, the furniture items themselves. Um, so I just wanted to share some of those thoughts with you uh, that that uh, I came across in that experience and happy to answer any other questions uh, either here or offline. Thank you so Thank much. You so much yeah, yes. super helpful to get those insights. Um, and definitely something that that we um, face as well. So um, yeah, thank you for that. What's the big weakness on your team? Um, I think as of right now, I mean, we are in Germany, so probably um, legal topics and mm -hmm. like um, regulations wise um, is probably the biggest weakness as of right now. Um, yeah, something that we are also planning to hire someone um, because Germany is very highly regulated, as we probably all know, when it comes to anything, basically, um, especially in like marketplaces and C2C and transaction things. So um, that's probably the biggest weakness as of right now. And with this 300,000, how much runway does that buy you? And how long will it take you to get to the point where you are not printing money, but at least making some money? So you have some revenue coming in. Mm -hmm. um, I think it will probably give us around um, a year of runway. Um, and same question probably that came also came up before. Um, we we are thinking of, of raising this round for a year because we believe that a lot can change within this year and we are still um, pretty early stage even though we, we got a lot of traction already. Um, so really like focusing on the different uh, models that we have right now and seeing okay how can we create the synergies you know what's uh, what makes sense and what doesn't um, is why we are focusing on, on a year runway right now. Um, generally speaking uh, we are already uh, making revenue and I think um, we are planning to break even um, by tw end of 2024. So something like that. What's the upside of only racing for a year? The upside is um, probably really, I mean, as of right now, uh, when it comes to the to the cap table, um, I think we are, the upside here is that we are more sure in like what directions are the most valuable for us in a year and like really reorganizing them. And what are the downsides? Um, gives us less runway. <laughs> so the downside is you die. <laughs> yeah. I would say take more money. I would say be real careful because you don't know what's going to happen. It could be a lot better. It could be a lot worse. Mm -hmm. That's my that's my feedback to everybody listening now is I don't think things are getting easier for a bit. I think they're getting harder for a bit. Get as much money as you can so you can get to a point where you have something instead of trying to optimize for valuation because well in two months three months six months we'll be further along and we can have a better valuation assuming you're still here in that amount of time and then you also need to be able to raise just just my two cents i'm not sure what you're seeing to rub Not sure if you heard that or not. So, anyways, thank you guys for presenting and sharing. Thank you. Thank you.
it's uh it's very cool what you're doing and um very meaningful because furniture is just people yeah. just want to get rid of it they just want to get it out once they're moving and it's a pain in the butt and what uh what do you do with it that's the that's the question everybody has now um i'd want to i want to move things over now to uh to ashley ashley you want to take it away with uh in good company and what you guys are doing on a on a food side of things as we are getting closer to uh to dinner time in europe <laughs> dinner time for you uh breakfast yeah. for me yes it depends. I'm, in, I'm in california <laughs> breakfast for you yeah breakfast for coffee me. the breakfast of champions <laughs> very cool exactly yeah so, well thank uh, you, so you can much. you can set your screen up if you want to um, share yeah. so. sorry about that All right, how's that look? Looking pretty good and very tasty. Take it away. All right, awesome. Well, thank you so much for having me um, on. So my name is Ashley Farron. I am the founder and CEO of In Good Company. And I don't know about you, but I am someone who loves to eat my way through life. And I am not alone. Um, oh, my slides are not advancing. There we go. Sorry about that. So uh, I think that I'm not alone. Uh, we are living in Generation Foodie, where an interest in elevated but convenient, convenient food options dominate the market. And while we know that consumer demand for better for me, better for the world products is at an all-time high, this attention has focused mostly on the food itself, not how it is packaged and distributed. Oh, what's happening with my slides? No worries. I always joke that technology is great, except when it sucks. Oh my gosh. Um, I'm sorry, Matt. Do you mind if I just cancel screen share and restart it? Because yeah, go yeah, go for it. And if it doesn't life. work, we can kick things over to Max. He had some constraints because of his dog, but we'll see. Are are you good to go, Max? Now? Uh, yes, I am, Matt. Thank you. Okay, I'll let Actually, Max go maybe first. you can, so, sorry for interrupting, maybe you can also try to click on your mouse pad. That's what worked for us right now because we had the same issue. You had the same issue, okay. So Matt, when you're you sharing, to... like, try to click on them. I don't know if you've already done that, but if you try to click on the mouse pad instead of going with, like, the arrows, it might work. Okay. Um, Matt, what's your preference? Do you want... Yeah, try, just, try, just try it. Yeah, try it. If, it. if it works, we're good. And if not, we'll hand things over to Max first and we can you can send it to me. Okay, yeah, the clicking with my mouse seems to work. So awesome. Then set it all up. You're good. Sorry about that. No worries. Okay. All right, take two. So well, I was, uh, what I was saying is that, you know, we are living in a generation foodie where there's this elevated, this interest in elevated but con convenient food options. And while we know that consumer demand for better for me, better for the world products is at an all time high, this attention is focused mostly on the food itself, not how it's actually packaged or distributed. Unfortunately, the system for packaging, distributing, and consuming food is wasteful and polluting. 99% of food products come in single-use packaging, less than 3% of which is recycled or composted. Food products travel an estimated 800 to 1,500 miles 
from the point of manufacturing to a consumer's plate. And 30 to 40% of food is wasted across the US food supply chain and households. And this has serious carbon impacts. Single-use packaging account for between 1.5 to 2.5% of total US, US greenhouse gas emissions. Food transportation adds an another 6 to 7%, and food waste, another 4 to 6%. If you add these up, there's between 11 to 16% of US greenhouse gas emissions just related to the packaging and distribution of our food supply. And this does not even account for the plastic pollution crisis our planet is also facing. So we are here to help change the game. In Good Company is a next generation retail platform that designs, produces, and distributes food products for the at-home market using a regionalized circular model that drives resiliency from product inception all the way to your dinner table. Our solution reimagines the entire supply chain behind the production and distribution of consumer food products. We support the re-regionalization of our food system through a hub-and-spoke model that reduces the food miles driven. We reduce food waste through a zero-waste production and distribution process and a focus on frozen and extended shelf life products, and we're developing an end-to-end -end circular system with reusable packaging at its core. The Inga Company platform goes way beyond simply making exciting and sustainable food products, though we do that. <laughs> we are really building the infrastructure needed to support this new category of food products. We provide the actual high volume and localized production for our food products. Um, we are building a circular supply chain and logistics management system. We offer durable packaging technology and expertise and an end-to-end -end service model together with our partners. Trying to apply this type of a system to existing product manufacturing would be nearly impossible as the complexity and switching costs are incredibly high. Right now, our system is built for a linear process and going to circular is a big change up. So to uh, pave the way, we are building this solution from the ground up. Our goal is to demonstrate how this type of a model can work and be applied to other systems going forward. And so to do this, we've started by applying our model, our approach to our own product line. So meet in good companies line of um, premium, consumer products, and they are products that harness today's foodie interest in elevated and convenient meal experiences at home. We know that Americans prepare and eat 82% of their meals at home. 56% of U.S. adults consider themselves foodies, and these people are already spending $134 billion a year on prepared meals, meal kits, and restaurant takeout. We are focused on applying our solution to this market as a jumping off point for today, and we see huge expansion potential in the future. So what does this actually mean? Well, over the last two years, we've developed a line of premium frozen products, releasing 78 different meals in collaboration with top chefs across Southern California. And we recognize that culture and consumer demand is one of the most powerful catalysts for significant business innovation. That means we're using a network of the hottest culinary influencers and creators of today to create high-impact, high-velocity products that not only spark excitement from today's trend-setting foodies, but also showcase this new model, getting it onto dinner tables across the region. We're doing it with circularity at our core from day one. Our end-to-end -end production, packaging, and distribution model, backed by proprietary technology, makes circular operationally feasible and, super important, economically viable in both direct-to-consumer and eventually retail applications as we scale.
This technology is especially important because it gives us 100% traceability and financial accountability at every step of the process, both internally and with our customers. Our model is built around a vertically integrated hub and spoke approach, and we have our first hub operating in Southern California. To date, we've delivered meals to thousands of households, replacing over 50,000 single-use items. We've built a system where the maximum distance food travels is 150 miles. That's 80 to 90% less than in a traditional manufacturing model. And we've already proven a 90% packaging return rate, which is at or above the estimated break-even point for our products. But beyond the importance from just a model and sustainability perspective, we're really confident in this differentiated hub-and-spoke approach as it provides us with solid unit economics and a clear path to profitability by the region and overall, um, something which is quite different if you think about the recent world of meal kit uh, companies and expansion. Um, using this model, we can basically take one kitchen from launch to profitability in 21 months, and the investment in each kitchen is paid back in under three years. Our unit economics performance is driven by our batch production, purchasing power, scaled commission structure with partners, and an efficient delivery and reverse logistics network. One minute Together, warning. This gives us a clear path to producing high-quality food products at a 50% or higher gross profit. Um, to see what this like model looks like as we scale, we see it as a repeatable model that can um, spread across the country. Our plan is to open five to seven kitchens, or sorry, five. 15 kitchens in the next five to seven years, giving us an ability to serve over 60 million people. And based on our current product line, we project being able to earn over $540 million in annual revenue with $100 million EBITDA. Um, our, the market that we're going after has been largely catalyzed by the pandemic. Um, where we see this explosive interest in online grocery shopping, presenting a big market opportunity. While there are a lot of players trying to get consumers the products they want, no one is doing it in a circular and sustainable way like we are. Um, it's a solution that's working, and we've already had a ton of um, coverage from major media sources. I've got a great team helping me bring this vision to life. Um, really quickly, my background before the pandemic, I was actually building another circular economy-based business focused exclusively on the packaging side of the business. Time um, is up. Okay. <laughs> Sorry about that. Got no. a little thrown off from the, the start, but it all I'm happens. happy to go through any questions around the team or our fundraise as so, we wrap up. So about the previous packaging startup, there's a lot of companies that are just trying to get the circular packaging systems going. And you made it sound like you already have that working well. Why also Absolutely. make the direct-to-consumer business then? Pardon? Why also build a direct-to-consumer business when you have a technology you could license or sell to others? Yeah, so we see the um, marriage of our circular packaging with the um, product today as a real way to drive um, the velocity and usage of our products on consumer tables. So we are able to, you know, basically drive consumer demand for the products. And something to note about our traction to date, we've um, built up our customer base and sold all of our products off of 100% organic marketing. 
So instead of trying to convince customers to try circular packaging or a circular packaging service, instead we are exciting them by the product, by their interest in food. And that really opens up people's minds to want to take this one extra little step around the circular packaging. And so by combining the two, we really see a way of kind of expediting the adoption of products distributed in circular packaging, train consumers on how to participate in that system and be able to grow the actual usage of circular packaging in a meaningful way. You think that? Go ahead. Uh, I was just going to ask, could you comment a little bit about uh, the the operations are they internally managed are they outsourced both the uh, the delivery and recollection of the packaging as well as kind of the the sanitizing and reuse of it yeah so we are a vertically integrated um operation that means we kind of manage the process all the way from product development and production on the front end through to the delivery and recollection of our packaging on the back end um, and it is that kind of complete control over the entire system that allows us to build a frictionless experience for customers while maintaining the right control um, over the operational side. You know, right now, uh, where we are in our first market. As we look at growing across the country, we plan on using the knowledge and expertise and the technology that we're building by kind of owning the process right now and finding the right place to engage additional partners when we look towards that nationwide expansion. So, you know, potentially there might be partners around the delivery side or the reverse logistics side. Um, but first, we really wanted to own the process to understand the nuance, to be able to build the right technology and then identify the right partners to help us scale. Makes sense. Yeah. The, the, the one thing I'll point out, I think uh, um, from uh, some of the companies I've seen do something like this, I think, uh, uh, you know, if you can get a partnership with somebody like a DoorDash or something like that, you know, uh, this is just an example, but someone that already has a delivery network out there uh, conducting kind of these operations going door to door, um, that can help uh, really scale up and uh, and uh, kind of make the collection costs more efficient. Um, so one person can kind of go deliver food and pick up the packaging versus uh, kind of having to do both. So that's just yeah. some food for thought. Yeah, I mean, you know, so for right now, we've actually, um, we're incredibly proud of what we've been able to achieve from the delivery side. It's not one of our pain points currently, definitely as we grow. Um, but because we're using uh, frozen and extended shelf life products, we are able to kind of um, aggregate our delivery routes. We're not doing on-demand delivery. So we organize highly efficient routes that we utilize to both deliver products as well as collect back packaging from other households that are on that same route. Over the last year, we've taken our per cost stop from over $16 down to just 6 to $7 per stop, which accounts, um, it's about less than $2 per, um, per item delivered. And that's already kind of baked into, um, our unit economics. And so it, um, yeah, it's, a, it's actually working very well for us so far. That's great. And, and then I'll just ask you this question on, uh, how do you think about competition? There's, uh, you know, a lot of people in this space, uh, trying to do something similar. So how do you think about kind of competitive advantage and, uh, and being able to thwart competition? Yeah. 
So there's, you know, a few aspects. Uh, one is definitely our focus on circularity from day one. Um, there are a lot of competitors from, you know, big meal kit companies to other CPG products. And in for many of those, especially in the meal kit world, right, consumer frustration around packaging is one of the largest drivers of their churn rate, um, something that's very important to be able to acquire customers and sustain, um, you know, a reasonable economics as you grow is having a, a lower churn rate. Um, so what we know is that customers love the experience within Good Company, and we have a competitive advantage by being circular from day one, right? All of these big businesses are being forced with consumer demand. Hey, how do you not fill our trash can every time we get this meal? And them trying to change their operations today is very complicated versus us building the system from day one. So our circularity we see as definitely a competitive advantage. Um, the second is really how we're building our early product lines. So we have this deep connection with um, local culinary creators, top chefs, restaurants, and other influencers, maybe cookbook authors or YouTube stars, um, who help us co-design our products. They're also our advocates and basically our sales force going out and selling our products. Again, if you look at the competition, one of the biggest challenges is around customer acquisition. I think, Matt, you flagged the uh, highly uh, competitive space of like Facebook marketing, we have a um, completely unique ability to basically borrow brand equity, leverage today's hottest culinary creators to acquire our customers for us. And then we basically bring customers into this unique and frictionless experience that gets amazing food on their table and makes them feel good about their choice for themselves and the planet. And we really see that as like a win-win-win approach at both customer acquisition and long-term retention, giving us a huge competitive advantage in the space. That's great, Ashley. Uh, best of luck. Um, I just wanted to point out some things that uh, came to mind and uh, sounds like uh, you guys are already thinking through all of it. So best of luck. And uh, definitely, if you want me to forward this uh, presentation along to Closed Loop Partners or anyone, please do let me know. Absolutely. Thank you so much. How did, the actual, how did the actual climate economics play out for this versus other meal deliveries versus grocery shopping and cooking it myself. Because that was one of the big issues is the meal delivery companies are incredibly unsustainable from a, both from an economics and from a climate perspective. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, you know, the difference for the way we affect the equation for say grocery versus meal kit companies are two very different answers, right? Um, if we take meal kit companies or other direct to consumer food products, you know, there you're really looking at this incredibly wasteful system where you are shipping using a ton of packaging and heavy goods, one product basically, or, or, you know, one box at a time across the country. And so you have um, a lot of, carbon emissions related to the actual packaging, the miles driven, right? And then you're dealing with mostly fresh prepared products where you have this tremendous uh, waste from spoilage, people receiving products, not eating them. Um, so our solution really kind of cuts all of those, um, you know, makes a big impact in all of those areas. 
For one, our regionalized system helps cut down those miles driven. Because we're using a localized delivery model, we are not drop shipping our products. We actually send out, you know, couriers with highly efficient routes for the day where, you know, in a matter of a couple of hours, our drivers can make dozens of stops. Um, and we have no additional packaging. We're not putting it in a box with dry ice. And then when consumers get their products, on average, our customers order between four to five um, items at a time. That's 10 to 12 meals. That's all coming at once. You're going to have almost zero product spoilage because our products are all extended shelf life or frozen, which means consumers don't have to pull them out until they're ready to eat them. Um, and you are kind of cutting down on any one-off trips that people may otherwise be hauled calling like an Uber to their door for, you know, to bring one meal at a time versus we're bringing 10 to 12 at once. Um, so in grocery, you know, it's a little bit different, but you can pull some of those, you know, similar threads. I think we're complementary to people's grocery shopping habits. Um, we're not going to replace people going to the grocery store, but um, I think we kind of give them these additive entree options or other meal products um, without having a lot of the wastefulness of like meal kit or other direct-to-consumer purchases. What's the biggest pushback you're getting right now from investors? Um, well, in the venture climate, you know, there's a lot of hesitation around food. Food is arguably a complex space and one that has not proven to easily have high returns. Um, and so, you know, from a venture landscape, a lot of people did make big bets on the Blue Aprons and the, you know, Freshly's of the world. For example, Freshly was purchased um, for $1.5 billion by Nestle, but it did not last very long. And so, you know, kind of having confidence that our approach um, does give us a differentiated path to both scalability and financial performance at scale. Um, you know, it is, hey, we're early and so it's a bet, but that's the biggest challenge that we uh, find in getting conviction from investors. And the business model is to keep everything under your brand versus creating almost a a Shopify or a white label product so that the the chefs, the influencers, et cetera, could create their own business and you would just be the infrastructure behind that. The vision really is that as we grow, we could become that white label partner. Um, we've focused first on the in good company line of products that you see today as that kind of almost demonstration of the infrastructure that we're building. We've already had partners come to us and want to talk about, hey, could we help them kind of fast track their ability to launch this specific product? And we are very excited about the potential of being that regional partner for culinary influencers to design and release products that not only excite consumers at home, but do it in a sustainable and a unique way. You know, the other part, which I won't belabor right now, but around circular packaging is we can phenomenally, we can just deliver a phenomenally better customer experience, right? And so for these chefs and restaurants that want to have a great meal experience at home. They don't want their Michelin starred food arriving in a soggy cardboard box that you heat up in the um, oven. We can really be a value add partner that brings their brand to life. But it's showing up frozen, right? Pardon? But it's showing up frozen. So you're not going to be that either way then, are you? Absolutely. We've already worked with Michelin starred chefs. We've worked with um, incredible restaurant partners. It is also in opening up our minds to what's possible with Frozen. I mean, we can do a 
handmade seven layer semolina pasta lasagna with, you know, farmer's market fresh ingredients. And I guarantee you when you put that in your oven and you pull it out piping hot at home and you put it on the table with a beautiful salad and open a bottle of wine, your meal experience from that Michelin starred chef is going to be so close to what you could get um, in comparison to like maybe ordering that off of Uber Eats and getting something, you know, sent to your car and in the back of the table. And it's also phenomenally better than what most home cooks are going to be able to achieve on their own. So the fact that it's frozen, we don't see as a minimizer in terms of quality or experience in any way. Understood. Understood. Well, thank, thanks for sharing. It's it's definitely an interesting business, interesting model. I think it's a very competitive one, but I uh, I wish you guys the best of luck with it. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for having me on to share a bit about what we're building. Yeah, absolutely. And I would hand things over to our last, but certainly not least presenter of the night, Max with RPD Energy. Max is actually an investor and advisor with the company. Hi, um, thanks so much, Matt, for having me on. Thanks for the uh, flexibility. Take it away uh, and share the, a little bit more. With the timing, yep. Um, can you hear me? Hear you loud and clear. Take oh, it away. Terrific. Tell us how you're trying to change the way that yeah, uh, companies absolutely. get renewable. Yeah. Yep, uh, I will do that. Can everybody see that? Looking good. All right. Terrific. That's that's a good start. Excellent. Um, well, good morning. Good afternoon, everyone. Really appreciate the opportunity to present RPD Energy, particularly for our European friends who are probably thinking about supper, especially on the back of Ashley's awesome presentation. Thank you, Ashley. Um, so um, by way of introduction, uh, I'm Max Duckworth. I serve as the chair of the board of RPD Energy. Uh, we are a small streamlined company. The board is fairly active, uh, proactive. We are involved in strategic issues such as fundraising and partnerships. Uh, and again, I appreciate this opportunity to introduce uh, the company. So very simply, we make it simple for US corporations, large institutions and other uh, significant energy buyers to procure renewable energy to help them achieve their sustainability goals. That sounds very simple because um, there is so much new renewable energy being added on the grid, both utility scale and distributed, but it's actually surprisingly difficult to ensure that those green megawatt hours end up in the hands of the end users who really desire them. So what RPD Energy is doing is really driving a market transformation on the end user side of the market. So um, th this is a little bit of an executive summary just to set the stage. RPD Energy is a renewable energy platform or think virtual green utility that I will explain that really makes it a lot easier given the lack of practical choices for corporations looking to buy carbon-free energy or, or CFE. Uh, we offer um, uh, practical alternatives to power purchase agreements, or unbundled renewable energy certificates, which are sometimes referred to as greenwashing. Um, we're a market leader in 24 by seven CFE solutions, where we actually match the hourly consumption of the end user with local physical renewable energy. 
We have a growing portfolio of nationally recognized blue chip companies like Adobe, Intuit, Iron Mountain, LG, uh, a significant pipeline exceeding 20 million in contract value. Uh, we've been pretty thoughtful about outsourcing some of the large barriers to entry for a virtual green utility like RPD Energy. So all of the balance sheet requirements, all of the FTE requirements to participate along the green energy value chain, we've been able to outsource. And that also extends to uh, technology and other things that allow us to continue to be a market leader in the carbon-free energy space. Uh, we are also um, well underway on a significant technology build out, which is designed to ramp up business development, accelerate our sales cycles, streamline the actual transaction process, and ultimately create an industry-wide online marketplace for carbon-free energy. So the technology piece is one use of proceeds for our raise, which is 4 million or more. Uh, moving along. Um, so, so really just to kind of provide a little bit more of a contrast between RPD Energy's contract renewable uh, offerings versus what's already in the market. On the left-hand goalpost, you have REC-only products where you can purchase unbundled RECs, sew them onto your brown energy uh, procurement and try and call yourself green. That is increasingly discredited. On the other side of the uh, uh, spectrum, um, your other choice is to buy power purchase agreements. These are very significant onerous commitments, typically 10 plus years where you're buying um, the output of an entire project uh, under in, in a way that's very much favorable to the uh, renewable energy developer. So the analogy is really rather than kind of signing up for a 200 page contract, which is heavily weighted towards uh, the uh, renewable energy developer, RPD Energy will convey a lot of the sustainability benefits of power purchase agreements, but in a typical contract that you're used to buying that is right-sized. It's got the term that you want, the volume that you want, and the delivery location that you want. So moving on, um, uh, here's a snapshot of where the business is to date. Uh, we've moved over two terawatt hours of physical renewable energy across 40 different transactions with nine customers. As you can see from this US map, uh, we have done deals literally all over the grid. Um, and uh, we also have increasingly attractive customer journeys with some of our customers. You can see multiple um, tiles on, in different parts of the map, particularly Iron Mountain, you can see in the right-hand column, we have continued to become an increasing um, provider of their overall net zero and climate objectives. Uh, most recently in 2022, uh, a few months back, we did the largest and most comprehensive ever 24 by seven CFE deal in the marketplace. Um, we work very cohesively with um, a lot of the very large players across the value chain, all the way from renewable generators, all the way through the end user, brokers, consultants, and advisors. It's a very harmonious business model um, that, that delivers multiple benefits, not just to the end users, 
but to literally everybody across the value chain. Um, spent, I'll spend a little bit of time on the tech build out summary uh, because this is very important when it comes to venture investors, understandably. We are working with Scoville Risk Partners, which is a leading energy analytics firm to develop this technology, which will, One be, minute warning. Which will be owned by RPD Energy. Uh, the 4 million raise that I'm talking about includes phases one and two. Phase one is really an ability for end users and market participants in the US to understand the art of the possible when it comes to CFE. Uh, this will be a free service, certainly intended to raise awareness and um, uh, ramp up business development and reduce sales cycles. Phase two will be subscription-based, where we'll actually allow end users to receive real-time pricing for different carbon-free energy structures that they're looking for. As I mentioned early, phase three is really the holy grail in a subsequent round where we're going to look to really through auctions or, or per periodic um, offerings, uh, take this to an online transactable marketplace. The 4 million use of funds is spread out across the tech build out that I've just described. We really want to kind of pour some fuel on the fire when it comes to existing products and ramp up marketing. Am I done, Matt? Yes, your time is now up. I give you a little okay. extra time because we are Thank you. short I really panelists. appreciate it. it. It's a very streamlined team, which is commercially and strategically focused because of the benefit of being able to outsource mid and back office functions to Axpo US, our, our, uh, the American subsidiary of our Swiss-based partner, Axpo, that you will have heard of in Europe. And I think that that really, that really is probably it. Thank you, Matt. What is the biggest challenge for buying green energy? It doesn't seem like it should be this hard. Why is it this hard? Why do you have to have a green energy virtual power company or power plant? Yeah, so, so, so certainly when it comes to um, achieving your sustainability objectives, um, and I can quickly go back here, Matt, just to talk to the slide again. So on the left-hand side here, you can um, buy an unbundled REC, a renewable energy certificate that's created for every megawatt hour of renewable energy that's in injected on the grid. That is being increasingly discredited in the renewable energy community, in the sustainability community. Um, at the other extreme, power purchase agreements definitely work for the very large corporations and uh, stewards such as Google and Walmart and Meta and Amazon. But for a large majority of the S&P 500 companies, the largest uh, corporations in the US or um, other large institutions like academic research or governmental institutions, uh, quite simply, there's no, there's no real appetite to sign up for 10 plus years and take the entire output of a new renewable energy product uh, project. So what we're really doing is making it a lot easier to sell renewable energy by the slice, taking um, uh, green megawatt hours and the associated renewable energy certificates and branding rights and conveying those in uh, an agreement in a contractual structure 
which is how energy buyers normally transact when it comes to electricity. There's so many like caveats and legal terms added into that. It seems so complicated just to buy energy. You know, un un unfortunately it is. But, but, but <sighs> really what we do, Matt, is um, we do a lot of the heavy lifting. When you think about everything that happens, when your electricity flows from one of the renewable generators on the left through the wholesale market, through the retail market, and ultimately to the end user, we do a lot of the heavy lifting. We bring everybody together uh, like a broker that structures products, and we essentially ensure that with a very simple contract that's only about six to eight pages, the end use buyer uh, is able to um, it, it essentially receives a lot of the sustainability benefits from that green energy purchase. Mm -hmm. And you've sold a lot of that green energy. How have you managed to get so much traction so quickly? Um, well, uh, kind of, I, I appreciate it. Uh, like a lot of early stage companies, it hasn't always been easy. We have been fairly nimble. We've had to pivot. But I, I think what's happening now, Matt, is that certainly in the US since about 2020, there really has been this uh, sustainability, ESG, um, carbon commitment, net zero movement, which has been embraced by a majority of America's largest corporations, as well as other institutions, of course, including government. And so I feel like the tide has turned and there's, there's a lot more demand on the end user side of the market. And we're able to take something which you correctly identified as very complicated and, and condense it into a very simple contract that, that is how they normally do business and helps them get closer to their climate objectives. Um, the, the other thing too, very quickly, is that um, when you're dealing with very large companies like Iron Mountain or Intuit or LG, there's a certain relief uh, when they come back to you and say, not only do you want to do the same deal again, we actually would like to do a larger, more complicated, uh, more sustainable deal, because that's really where we're heading as a corporation. And we really like the fact that you can work with us on this journey. What's the business model? Are you getting paid on that recurring basis? Or is it just the project or just the kind of upfront costs? Yeah, yeah. Great question. And I, I should have mentioned that in the five minute pitch. So uh, we are so much more than a broker. We do a lot of the structuring, the architecting, as I said, think of us as a virtual green utility. At the end of the day, we are paid like a broker. So we do uh, receive a fixed unit margin for every megawatt hour that flows over the course of our deals. Um, and the good news is that we're dealing with high credit quality companies um, and, and other counterparties along the value chain. And our unit margins are insulated from price risks and volume risks and any other risks that, that, that occur in the, in the industry. So there's no recurring revenue then? Um, there's no recurring re revenue from a SaaS perspective, although 
phase two of our tech build out has a subscription element, which is certainly intended to drive us in that direction. I should also point out that we recognize that there are many smaller energy buyers uh, out there in the US and we define those as having a load or demand of less than one megawatt. And so what, what we're in the process of doing here, Matt, is launching a platform in collaboration with Edge and Expo and Freepoint, which is gonna really- uh, allow, It's gonna allow smaller buyers um, to benefit from the power of aggregation and reduce customer acquisition costs so that they can buy this carbon-free energy uh, through this platform. And the idea here is really from a business standpoint to drive higher frequency, more commoditized, lower touch deals and get closer to recurring revenue, Matt. Understood. Tarab, do you have any questions? What are the next stages in the company's development? What are the goals they need to hit, not just for a Series A, but is there a Series B planned? Where do they plan to get to in the next three, five years? What's the money actually going to go to? Yeah, absolutely. So so uh, as we touched upon, this raise is about the tech build out where we feel, we feel very good about the blueprint in terms of milestones and timelines and costs. That will take us through phase two. Of, of, of the tech build out. We also want to uh, really um, kind of amplify our marketing and business development, uh, given that we now have significant tailwinds because even large sophisticated corporations in the US with significant climate goals don't always know how to go about that. So there's a real opportunity in the next 12 to 24 months to significantly expand the portfolio. We also want to continue to be right at the forefront of carbon-free energy procurement and continue to develop new products. For example, products in regulated markets in the US um, that would allow us to cover a greater geographic territory. And what do you see as the biggest risk in the business? Um, I think the biggest risk in the business is um, the, um, it, 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 it's certainly commodity prices. Uh, the fact that uh, last year, certainly in Europe and to a lesser extent in the US, we saw um, you know, a very significant increase in prices, which was mainly geopolitically driven. This is, uh, th that's generally not a good environment for this business uh, because it makes corporations uh, that are price sensitive less likely to pay a small premium for these carbon free energy uh, solutions that are very helpful for their sustainability objectives. That having been said, we did have a record year when it came to new total contract value that was uh, originated in 22. Have you pursued reducing the kind of commission fee and having a recurring revenue basis, or is that just something they don't want to explore because they would be long-term and lots of money? 
Yeah, um, that's certainly something that we're thinking about, Matt, and we don't have time now, but if you have any ideas, I'd love to, uh, love to pick your brain offline because we, we, um, we're also beginning, even though we're not a consulting shop, to, so we're starting to monetize that very early part of the deal cycle, where, as I said, you have corporations with very ambitious climate plans, which is fantastic, but they really don't know where to begin. And so that first part of the deal cycle can be fairly lengthy. We've looked to try to monetize that. Um, and certainly the tech platform that I quickly touched upon, especially in phase one, and in phase two, where they execute, this is intended to really uh, accelerate that period. And the team is lean. Who do they need to bring on? And what are the weaknesses of the team currently? Yeah, absolutely. So, so it is a lean team um, for the reasons I said. Uh, we certainly need to bring on more business development in direct channels where we're communicating with the end user as well as indirect channels where we're communicating with retailers and brokers and consultants. Um, on the tech side, we're fortunate to be pairing up with Scoville Risk Partners, a uh, leading energy analytics shop in the US based, in, uh, based just south of New York. So I think we're gonna be in pretty good shape on the tech piece, but, um, uh, but yeah, I, I think it's, it's mainly, it's mainly um, going to be marketing and biz development, I think, from here, because we have the structuring expertise uh, and we already have the relationships along the value chain. What about the uh, fundraising? Matt, what, oh, yeah, go ahead. Sorry, Matt. I was going to ask Max, I was going to ask you uh, just a question. I think one thing that uh, I'm a little bit curious about from your presentation uh, is I'm curious, like... Uh, Sounds like I would think that everybody wants to get their hands on as much renewable electricity as can for the longest for a long term. Uh, seems like uh, you know what you I think what you described on one of the slides was that you guys are looking to sell kind of medium term energy. And so I'm kind of curious, could you comment a little bit of like uh, the the market for that or the demand for that? Uh, uh, gearing more towards kind of medium term or shorter term rather than the long term securing of uh, clean energy? Yeah, thank you, Tarab. That's, that's a great question, and I'll try and make my answer concise. So typically, um, for uh, large corporations that are procuring electricity and other commodities and other inputs to their production, they tend to align the term of those deals with their business cycle. And typically uh, what we see is one to three year contracts. The idea being that then you're not locked into the same structure and the same price for too long uh, in case um, business conditions and, and the overall environment change. The challenge with power purchase agreements as we've seen in the US over the last 15, 20 years is that corporations or the off takers, the buyers, are locked into the same structure and price for very long periods that not only extend well past their natural business and budgeting planning cycles, but also um, don't, can't possibly take into account topographical and dynamic changes in the transmission grid, where a data center is going, 
where are Bitcoin mines going, where are vertical farms going, where are renewables going. So literally, if you sign a new PPA today for 10 plus years, you're actually locking in and exposing yourself to very significant shifts in prices based on factors that you can't possibly predict today. So this medium term uh, contract that we're offering is, is intended to be a sweet spot. We can go as short as two years for folks who wanna be more retail-like. But if, if companies really like the current pricing environment, and this is a simple transaction that doesn't add additional risks onto the business, then they're gonna do a deal with RPD Energy uh, over the medium term. The longest deal we've done to date is eight years. The typical duration of our book, of our portfolio is about three and a half. Okay, that's helpful. Thank you so much. Thanks for the question. And if you guys fail, why will it be? If we fail, um, I, I would say, Matt, um, succinctly and given that it's nearly dinner, it's because we couldn't sell the hot dog. It is a it is a great hot dog uh, based on customer testimonials from Intuit, REI, Iron Mountain. You can see that uh, Iron Mountain has chosen to do progressively larger and more sustainable and beneficial deals with us over time. So if we if we fail, it's because we couldn't sell the hot dog. So they're already eating your hot dog and they clearly have the money to do the investment. Why haven't Iron Mountain done the investment? Uh, investment in? RPD. You guys are looking to raise money. You've oh, got oh, oh, yeah, yeah, signature yeah. client. Yeah, yeah, I see. Yeah, yeah. so, so there's, there's, there's kind of a running joke that uh, um, there's a running joke that uh, we are the energy procurement arm of Iron Mountain. And, you know, again, tongue in cheek, tongue in cheek, because they have some great folks there like, uh, like Chris Pennington and others. But um, uh, at, at the end of the day, we have had interest from corporate strategics, uh, certainly. And um, I should also mention um, that uh, about 12, 15 months ago, the company received an unsolicited offer to be acquired from a very large renewable energy player uh, in the value chain. Uh, the board was very flattered. It ended up being the right deal at the wrong time. So I think there's certainly um, a, a decent opportunity for the company to be acquired in the next one to two to three years, particularly if we can execute on the plan and it makes sense for somebody to bring us in-house. If that's the case, then why would a VC invest who's looking for much larger returns? That makes things much more dangerous, so to speak, for them because they're not going to have a big upside, but there is plenty of risk that it doesn't that it doesn't materialize into something larger. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I think certainly the organic uh, trajectory where we have pretty good visibility here in twenty three and twenty four, based on repeat business as well as uh, the pipeline of new customers. Um, there's plenty of upside here in terms of IRR or ROIC or whatever the right the right metric is. Um, I was really just speaking to the fact that VCs would also want to know what is the exit strategy. And when you think about the fact that we have low OPEX, we're very streamlined, 
we have uh, a dedicated tech partner. We have Axpo US, which handles all of our wholesale services as well as our mid and back office and balance sheet. This is a company, RPD Energy is a platform that's pretty easy to bolt onto a larger host. Understood, understood. Any last questions on your side, Tarab? Uh, no, not low questions. I think the only comment I would make is uh, kind of going to your point, Matt. I think I'm kind of curious whether VC partner for this kind of a business. Uh, I, I think it, there's a little bit more kind of, first of all, uh, uh, I think a little bit more of a operational play here, uh, a little bit more of a kind of a relationship customer relationship play here and i think speaking uh i'm kind of curious like that scalability uh and and returns would be there for what a venture capitalist is seeking is versus somebody that's a little bit more inclined towards operations something that maybe from the financial side something that's a little bit more of a a pe type play uh or uh or m and a uh, or otherwise as oh yeah otherwise matt pointed out uh an player uh from a, like a bigger player uh in in the space yeah that would be, um, but yeah, anyways that, that's just food for thought no 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 it's um very quickly yeah no no thank you for the feedback and and your points are very well taken um i didn't hear everything but um to 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 one of your points to rob we, uh, you know, I think it's fair to say that we are well past the proof of concept stage. When you look at the Iron Mountain journey, we have something similar with Intuit and others. And the fact that we have contracted over two terawatt hours of physical renewable energy life to date, that's a pretty significant volume. Um, but, but, but we do recognize the need to tech enable the business, which is why we'll be launching our edge platform to, to get closer to SaaS revenue. And we're also um, feeling pretty good about the blueprint for phase one and two here of the tech build out, uh, which will also bring um, SaaS revenue because phase two will be a subscription service. But really, really appreciate that feedback, um, which I'm happy to take on board. Awesome. Yeah, then that would, so that would kind of... Yeah, best of luck from from both of us. Best of luck to everybody and all the startups here. It's time to move into our last segment of the the startup tank, and that is the uh, the startup of the night. So, Torab, I know you weren't here for the for the first couple companies. So, if you want, you can put a you can put a vote in, or I can I can go my way with kind of picking. I think that all the companies that presented here certainly uh, had. I missed a, it for a couple of Matt. Okay. I would say I would say looking at it, every company here certainly has something, and pitching pitching in and of itself is miserable once you're putting everything on the line. But for me personally, kind of the biggest impact, kind of one of the bigger risks, but also one of the bigger rewards would be um would be a Hemant and a Zero Circle. That's the one that's tackling the biggest problem. Where if they do solve that, that can be absolutely massive, even if there are multiple players in the space. It's such a large market bringing kind of sustainability into the into the finance space 
if they're able to originate those green loans, plus also help banks, lenders, et cetera, with reducing their carbon footprint. That's where I see the the biggest impact and the biggest biggest return perspective. I guess I I guess that's all. I guess that's our startup of the night then, folks. Sorry, uh, sorry that um things are a little bit different this week than the most times, but all the companies that presented incredible job, congratulations. You can find all the free resources that we've got on our site at forward.vc, our climate VC database, 900 plus funds, incubators, accelerators, and CVCs focused on climate and clean tech. Uh, you can find our climate Slack community, our climate techies WhatsApp group. Everything is there for the taking for you folks, forward.vc. And if you want to apply the pitch on the startup tank, we do this every two weeks, just the startuptank.com, pre-seed to pre-series A. Be sure to subscribe so you don't miss a thing. And Turub, where is the best place for people to find you, reach out, et cetera? Uh, I just sent um, chat uh, uh, my email on the chat. You guys can reach out to me there. Otherwise, you can also find me on LinkedIn uh, and connect with me on that. Uh, so looking forward to staying in touch with everyone and best of luck to everyone. Thanks, folks, for tuning in. And thanks everybody for pitching. Congrats, good luck, and let's uh let's go get dinner. I'll talk to you folks later. Cheers. Thanks for tuning in to another segment of the Startup Tank Climate Investor Pitch Show, presented by Forward VC. I'm your host, Matt Ward, serial founder, climate investor, and partner at Forward VC's Angel Syndicate, investing in companies that move the world forward. To learn more about me, download my free growth and fundraising guides, or to get help scaling your company, please visit mattward.io. If you're interested in pitching on a future segment of The Startup Tank, please visit thestartuptank.com. And if you're a credit investor interested in investing alongside us in top climate and impact companies that move the world forward, please visit forward.vc for more details and to apply.